and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am recording this audio in Freiburg, Germany, where I arrived just about a week ago, and I'll be here and briefly in Berlin until the end of July. I've been on something of a little bit of a book tour and have just, you know, been doing all sorts of events and interviews and actually have been the guest on several other podcasts. So I haven't really had the time to pay attention to my own. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, I was a guest with Michael Albert on the Revolution Z podcast and with Mexi on the Total Liberation podcast, as well as with Robert Raymond on the Upstream podcast. The Upstream podcast is a really in-depth two-hour conversation about everyday utopia, and I'll leave links to these podcasts in the show notes to this episode in case you're interested in checking them out. It's been a very interesting couple of weeks as I talk to people about the book and get emails from readers and see how it has been resonating. I am doing a couple more events in the immediate future. I will leave links to those in the show notes as well in case you want to sign up for them. If you're on the West Coast in the United States, I'm going to be at City Lights Bookstore online at 6 p.m. on July 19th, which is imminent. I'm also doing the How-To Academy in London with the science journalist Angela Saini, talking to her and her wonderful book, uh, The Patriarchs, The Origins of Inequality. I highly recommend that book if you're looking to understand how men came to rule, which is the British subtitle of her book. I reviewed it in Jacobin, and I'll also leave a link to my review in Jacobin. And then on August 9th, so that how-to academy is on August 3rd, and on August 9th, I am going to be in world in Second Life doing the Second Life Book Club with Draxter. That ought to be uh, a lot of fun. I've done the in-world book club before for Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, and we had a great conversation. And then on August 13th in New York, I will be at the Society for Ethical Culture uh, doing their Sunday platform uh, at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. That's the 13th. And on the 15th, Tuesday evening, I'll still be in New York and I'm doing the rebooted Half King reading series, which I also had the pleasure of doing when I was doing my little book tour for Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. So lots and lots of things going on, even more events lined up for the fall. You can sign up for my newsletter if you're interested in hearing and keeping up to date and getting links and things to all the various events that I've been doing or will do in the future. I also have a favor to ask of those of you who have social media. Uh, as you know, probably from listening to this podcast, I don't really do social media. I'm still very much a novice. But there is now an Instagram page for Everyday Utopia. It is at everyday underscore utopia. And if you post an image of the book with yourself or the book somewhere out in nature in a cool 
place or even on a table next to a pretty cup of coffee or a cup of tea or even a beer, glass of wine, I guess your beverage of choice, please post that and mention everyday underscore utopia. Also, please mention at Simon Books. One word, Simon Books. Simon & Schuster is the publisher, and they are collecting images of the book from people on Instagram, and then they do a whole kind of reel or story about, you can tell that I don't really know what I'm talking about, but they do something on Instagram where they collect images of, of books that they've published and you you entered into some contest or something like that with Simon Books if you uh, post a picture of a, one of their books in the world. So if you have Instagram and if you are so inclined, please consider taking a picture of yourself with a book or, as I said, the book with a beverage of your choice. Since it's summer, it could be a nice you know, summer cocktail or something like that. Anyway, today I am finally going to dig in and we are going to start what I have been promising for a really long time, which is reading the workers' opposition. And because I actually have been talking to a fair number of anarchists about my book, Everyday Utopia, and I'm actually scheduled next week, I believe, to do another podcast with Graham Culbertson on everyday anarchism, I feel this is really the right moment to dig in and finally do the workers' opposition and talk about how it relates to Colin Ty's more Bolshevik career. So before we actually read her text, I found online a great pamphlet, which was published in September 1968 from a British group called Solidarity. And it is a 1968 introduction to Colin Ty's The Workers' Opposition. And I think it gives a very nice flavor of how important this pamphlet has been to anarchists and to sort of more libertarian communists on the left and trade unionists as well, people who really disliked the centralization that Lenin imposed through the Bolshevik party after war communism. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you understand a fair amount about early Bolshevik history. And so obviously the pamphlet that I'm going to read is from Britain in 1968, and it has a very strong point of view. But I do think it gives you a very nice flavor of what the relevance of this pamphlet was in the late 1960s, which, as I'm sure many of you will know or even remember, was a great time of social upheaval and political upheaval in the West as well. So there were all sorts of student riots going on. And there was a sense that things might really change. And so there were many anarchists and communists and socialists out there on the front lines who were really trying to go back and understand where the Bolsheviks went wrong, because what they saw, particularly, you know, given events in Czechoslovakia and other sort of signs that the Eastern Bloc was not the communist paradise that they had hoped it would be, they, many Western leftists were kind of forced with the ugly realization that they were going to have to go back and rethink their politics by excluding the Bolsheviks, not using the Bolsheviks as a kind of lodestar, but rather really going back to some of the original ideas to see where there might have been other pathways forward. And Kollontai's pamphlet on the workers' opposition is one of those really clear expressions of another way forward. So I'm going to read this introduction, and then in subsequent episodes, I will be reading the actual text of the workers' opposition. 
Introduction. Alexandra Kollontai's text, The Workers' Opposition, was written in Russian during the early weeks of 1921. It was first published in Britain in Sylvia Pankhurst's Workers' Dreadnought and reprinted in Chicago later that year. The text, one of the forbidden documents of Bolshevism, is an attempt to give a theoretical formulation to the theses on the trade union question submitted by the Workers' Opposition for Discussion at the 10th Congress in March of 1921 of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Solidarity republished Kollontai's document in 1961. The publication aroused considerable interest, as judged by sales, but little comment at the time. Translations appeared in Italian and French. Following recent events in Czechoslovakia, there has been a sudden renewal of interest among revolutionaries as to the class nature of the Russian state. This, and a steady stream of requests for our 1961 text, made a reprint imperative. Hence, this second Solidarity edition. Just a note before I continue. What happened in Czechoslovakia was obviously an attempt to liberalize Czechoslovak socialism, and then Soviet tanks invaded Czechoslovakia. So I just want to make that clear for those of you who may not realize that 1968 was this really important year of upheaval in many leftists' understanding of socialism in the Eastern European countries. Also, there is a mention of the Hungary in 1956, which was another uprising which was crushed by Soviet tanks. So just so you understand the references that this pamphlet is making. All right, back to the pamphlet. Kollontai's original pamphlet had for a long time been difficult to obtain, although its existence was undoubtedly known to quite a number of people in the revolutionary movement. Even after Khrushchev's revelations at the 20th Congress and the Hungarian events of 1956, none of the tendencies claiming allegiance to socialist humanism or to libertarian Marxism had grasped the significance of this text or had sensed the contribution it could make to the great discussion then taking place as to, quote, what went wrong, unquote. Or perhaps these tendencies had perceived it only too well. Kolontai wrote three years before Lenin died. Her document is a fundamental critique of the developing bureaucracy in Russia. It is a critique of a far more penetrating kind than those of the various tendencies which, for one reason or another, were, after Lenin's death, to oppose the Stalinist usurpation of the Russian Revolution. It contains fundamental ideas, for too long glossed over, as to the nature of workers' power and of socialism. It stresses the essential ingredient of working-class power at the point of production before anyone can even talk of a fundamental change in the class nature of society. It describes a phase of the struggle between the nascent bureaucracy and those advocating workers' management of production. That phase that was fought out within the ranks of the party, those advocating similar ideas outside of the ranks of the party had long been silenced. Finally, it warns with agonized and near prophetic insight of the internal dangers confronting the revolution. We do not attempt, either in this introduction or in the footnotes that follow Kollontai's text, 
to depict the conditions prevailing in Soviet Russia between 1917 and 1921. A number of excellent studies, Carr, Deutscher, etc., have been published on the subject, and Kolontai herself brings a number of interesting new facts to life. Nor do we attempt to write a history of the workers' opposition. The material for such a study is available in Daniel's excellent Conscience of the Revolution. Our task is a different one. We wish to bring to the attention of revolutionary socialists a basic document, still insufficiently known in the country. And in the footnotes, we seek to explore the role of Bolshevik ideology and practice in the degeneration of the Russian Revolution. Without at least a superficial knowledge of these facts, any analysis of what happened after 1917 must of necessity be incomplete. The degeneration of the Russian Revolution is usually attributed to such unavoidable and external factors as Russian backwardness, the failure of the revolution to spread to the industrially advanced countries of Western Europe, the overwhelming preponderance of the peasantry, and the terrible legacy of the devastation left by the imperialist war, by the civil war, and by the wars of intervention. Such factors were undoubtedly important in giving the degeneration of the Russian Revolution its specific features, but they do not fully explain the fundamental nature of the process. Moreover, these explanations do nothing to assist the development of the kind of mass socialist consciousness which alone can ensure that the process is not repeated. A moment's reflection will show why this is so. If the degeneration was due solely to unavoidable and external forces, and if the advance to socialism is solely dependent on these agencies, degree of industrialization, level of culture, availability of raw materials, etc., then all the revolutionary movement need concern itself with now are the technical problems of the conquest of power— building the vanguard party, ensuring it has sufficient implantation in the masses, etc. Revolutionaries can only live in hope that the conquest of power itself will not be followed by too great a destruction of natural resources, or pray that it will not occur in countries with too great a proportion of peasants in the general population. If, on the other hand, the building of socialism depends on mass socialist consciousness, on mass initiative, on mass preparation of the working class at all levels of economic and political life, then all ideologies that tend to substitute the action of a self-appointed elite for the actions of the masses, who, as Lenin stated, can only develop a trade union consciousness, need to be exposed from now. And in the text, now is underlined and in all capital letters. It is our contention that the ideology of Bolshevism, with its emphasis from as early as the spring of 1918, on one-man management of industry and on the political supremacy of the party, played a very significant role in the process of bureaucratic degeneration. This is not to denigrate the heroism and self-sacrifice of many early Bolsheviks. In Spinoza's words, the task is neither to laugh nor to weep, but to understand. And what has to be understood is that the ideas that went into the building of the Bolshevik party corresponded to a given stage of working class consciousness. They marked, in fact, 
a high tide of that consciousness. Large sections of the Russian proletariat identified themselves with the party they had created. Having through superhuman exertions and sacrifices brought that party to power, the class retreated from the historical stage, delegating its party the great task of building the new society. This retreat from active and creative work was partially imposed upon the class by factors beyond its control. The war and the famine had dispersed and disseminated its basic cadres, but the retreat was also encouraged and at times even enforced by the practice of the Bolsheviks. Kolontai was only vaguely aware of this aspect of the problem. We cannot, however, remain silent about it. If there is to be a progression of both revolutionary theory and revolutionary practice, we must go beyond the particular level of consciousness pertaining to the period Kolontai described. The unpalatable facts concerning the ideas and practices we are seeking to transcend must be made widely known and must be thoroughly discussed throughout the movement. Kolontai's critique of the developing bureaucracy suffers from two main shortcomings. These are interesting in that they both reflect the fact that demystification, in relation to Bolshevik practice, had not gone beyond a certain point for those industrial militants who formed the backbone of the workers' opposition. The first criticism that could be made of Kolontai's text is that it is essentially an appeal to the party leaders, and in particular to Lenin. Ilyich, Kolontai writes, will ponder, he will think it over, he will listen to us, and then he will decide to turn the party rudder towards the opposition. Ilyich will be with us yet. Only at times does Kolontai seem to appeal to the party rank and file and to the broad masses of the working class outside the party, with a view to mobilizing them against the Bolshevik leadership. She still seems to accept, although with obvious reluctance, the profoundly pernicious doctrine of the primacy of the party. Adherence to this doctrine was to lead other prominent supporters of the workers' opposition into actions at variance with some of their most deeply held beliefs. For instance, it was to lead many of them into denouncing the Kronstadt uprising. Side note, the Kronstadt uprising was an uprising of anarchists on the Kronstadt island outside of Petrograd, and it was brutally put down by Trotsky and the Red Army. Okay, back to the text. How could this possibly arise? The answer isn't really hard to find. As many who have broken with Stalinism or Trotskyism will know from their own experience, the rejection of a given system of ideas does not, unfortunately, proceed at an even tempo in relation to all its manifold implications. In the absence of clearly articulated alternatives, the process is usually difficult in the extreme. It must have been particularly hard for those breaking with Bolshevism in 1921 and yet intent on remaining serious revolutionaries. This unevenness in the growth of revolutionary consciousness has proved an easy target for latter-day wise acres of all kinds. For instance, Brian Pierce, the cynical ex-historian of the Socialist Labor Party, can write, quote, The workers' oppositionists would have had a very quizzical smile for those who today claim that a good communist in 1921 should have been both for them and for the Kronstadters, unquote. 
Pierce claims that Kronstadt and the workers' opposition represented mutually antagonistic programs. Other Trotskyites have made this same kind of point. Thus, Socialist Current, in their review of our 1961 edition of this pamphlet, imply that there is something illogical in non-Bolsheviks feeling a sense of affinity for the workers' opposition. Kolontai, they pointed out, argued as a leading participant in the Bolshevik party, whereas Solidarity argue as vehement opponents of the whole concept of Bolshevism, unquote. Real life, however, is more complex than that. The tragedy of Kronstadt, for instance, was precisely that good communists were to be found among both the contending forces. We prefer Daniel's assessment of the overall situation of 1921. Quote, the opposition within the party and the Kronstadt revolt were manifestations of the same kind of dissatisfaction. Both attacked communist leadership for violating the spirit of the revolution, for sacrificing democratic and egalitarian ideals on the altar of expediency, and for inclining to bureaucratic concern with power for its own sake. Unquote. In their program, though not in their armed defiance, the Kronstadters were closely akin to the ultra-left opposition within the party. The other criticism one could make of Kollontai's text is its implied identification of the working class with the unions and of workers' management of production with management of production by the unions. By 1921, the Russian unions were already strongly under party control and therefore, for dual reasons, already in a fairly advanced stage of bureaucratization. As we shall show in detail in our forthcoming pamphlet, Bolshevik policy in the first year or so after the revolution was to remove all questions of industrial management from the hands of autonomous workers' committees and vest them in the hands of the unions or other economic organizations. At a later stage, from about 1919 on, they were to shed even the pretense of union control and sought firmly to place all matters of industrial policy directly in the hands of the party. Whether Kollontai and the workers' opposition realized it or not, their protest was really against this second phase of Bolshevik policy. But in the process of articulating their protests, they hit on a number of profoundly relevant truths. These truths are still relevant today, 1968. They have moreover ceased to be abstractions. Both East and West, the working class has, during the last 50 years, gone through a tremendous experience, the experience of its own leaderships, in fact, of all leaderships claiming to act on its behalf. And deep down, it is beginning to draw the lessons of a whole historical epoch. These are that its emancipation will only be achieved and maintained through its own sustained efforts. Over a hundred years ago, Marx and Engels wrote that the emancipation of the working class is the task of the working class itself, and that the proletarian movement was the self-conscious independent movement of the immense majority. In 1921, Alexander Kollontai and the workers' opposition perceived some aspects of this essential truth through the terrible experience of the bureaucratic counter-revolution. Today, after the open admissions of the 20th and the 22nd Congresses of the CPSU, Communist Party of the Soviet Union, after what the whole world witnessed in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, and after the innumerable and as yet undocumented horrors of the Stalin epoch, 
and of the period immediately preceding it. It is the task of revolutionaries to take a dispassionate look at reality, to draw all the lessons, and fearlessly to proclaim them. Okay, that's the end of this little introduction. Obviously, this pamphlet is being reissued at a moment of great crisis among Western Marxists and even members of the British Communist Party. Obviously, this group, Solidarity, which is a British group, they're anti-Bolshevik, and they are basically trying to use Kolontai and Kolontai's text for the workers' opposition as a way to discuss the fundamental problems with Bolshevism from the very beginning using the voice of a Bolshevik. And, you know, towards the end of this pamphlet, there's this sort of like infighting sectarianism among these British socialists who are basically questioning whether the Kronstadters and the workers' oppositionists were on the same side or were on opposite sides, particularly given that some of the workers' oppositionists would turn and not support the Kronstadters. But ultimately, the reason that I decided to read this little introduction from 1968 is because I think now in 2023, as we begin to read this pamphlet on the eve of what may be a huge labor strike in the United States among UPS workers, it's really important to go back and think about the theory of the relationship between the masses, the working classes, the trade unions, and the Vanguard Party. So that's it for this episode. I hope that this next series on the workers' opposition will be timely and relevant to global events. And as always, thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight. (laughs) 